Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. And your hosts are me, Bob Dale. And me, Ali Downey. Good evening, Ali Downey. How are you, sir? I'm a little bit blind. I hit myself in the eye with the headphones. Literally, I was going to leave you alone, <laughs> but the last three minutes has been an absolute clusterfuck. Yeah. You didn't have your headphones on. You I had a lot of issues. You couldn't straighten your mic, and then you smashed yourself <laughs> in the face. I did. I did that with the, with the headphones. I enjoyed every moment of it, if it makes you feel any I'm better. glad somebody did. I wish I'd filmed it. That's that's a moment that we'll never... I'm ne- really glad we don't film anything. <laughs> Just in general. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to do it one day, Al. We will have to do some kind of live podcasting at some point. We have had confirmation we are doing live podcasting at CrimeCon. Should we, we talk about it now? Let's talk about CrimeCon. Since I've uh, remembered it, it's right at the beginning. People might listen then. CrimeCon is in June in uh, the Leonardo at Tower Bridge this year in London. Much better Leonardo than the other Leonardo. Absolutely. Does better paintings. Yep. Doesn't burn down. <laughs> Doesn't burn down. Is a sweet-ass Ninja Turtle. Um, n- uh, 10th and 11th of June. Uh, we'll be there, and we've had it confirmed that we are doing the True Crime Quiz on the Sunday evening. And we are doing a Podcasters with Pints. Nice. Um, that, that just sounds like our every day. Well, that's kind of why I pitched it for them. I have to write a synopsis of what it is, but I think I might just go with what we do. Podcasters with Pints is the synopsis. What are they talking about? Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, we have had it confirmed that Cherry and Morgan from Crimepedia nice. are going to join us, as are a few others yet to be confirmed, but we will talk about that. Closer uh, to the time. A bit closer to the time, yes. Um, if you are going to CrimeCon, come and say hello. We would love to see you there. Yeah. Um, and if you are on the on the sway about going, if 10% can sway you towards going, then use Twisted at checkout and you'll get 10% off. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to have a top hat. And I'll be next to him. Yep. That's how to find us. Yeah. Uh, that'll probably do it, eh? Yeah. You're doing this week's episode for That's us. Right, I do have this week's episode for you. Um, and to quote the text message you sent me, there's some crime, but yeah. mainly tennis. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a little crime. 
it is a terrible crime. Don't get me wrong. Terrible crime. But but there's a little crime and a whole lot of tennis. Which is weird because neither is a sportsman particularly, Al. No, I don't know a lot about tennis. Do you know more now than you did earlier? Very slightly. <laughs> Not much. No? No. No, no. Uh, who's your favourite tennis player? Andy Murray. Good work. I thought you were going to go with Mario from Wii Tennis, to be honest. Nice. I could have gone. Ah, <laughs> Luigi. Do you want me to go again? Yeah. Who's your favourite tennis player, Al? Luigi from Louis- Mario Tennis. Right, there we are. I'm going to stick with Andy Murray, though. Hometown boy, we have Tim to Henman. Him. I know two. Tim Henman, yeah. There's two tennis people. Andre Agassi. Well done. Uh... Rafael Nadal, indeed. Oh, yeah. that, that, I'm I'm done now. That's just it. because it's another turtle. Is yeah, that, yeah, that was it. Um, well, why don't we move on to some criminal tennis? Is yeah, criminal tennis. Is that all right? Yeah, you can go for criminal tennis. Criminal tennis. Yeah, this one actually might be a little shorter than usual, uh, with a little less in-depth information in places. And I apologise in advance. This is because. Twisted Britain is once again going international. International, baby. That is right. And in this case, all the court documents are in French. Twisted world. Yeah. I did briefly Google Translate, but the first paragraph of the court minutes contained the phrase, the sheep were turned on so that the long couch could be removed from the lady's bedroom. (laughs) So far, it feels like crime, if you ask me. Yeah, well, the trial did take place in France, obviously, and having just returned from there, I know the French are nuts. But I sincerely doubt that sheep factor into their judicial proceedings. We don't know that. True, but I also don't think the proceedings were conducted in a bedroom, ladies or men's. Oh yeah, I never thought about like genderizing the bedroom. Yeah, a long couch, I wouldn't put past them. A chaise long. Yeah, I could, I could see a whole French courtroom of like reclining lazy boys. Sounds nice. Um, anyway though. You could have asked Rosalind to translate it for you. Oh God, there's a lot of court documents. Yeah, she would not want to do it if I'm being honest. <laughs> Translate this autopsy report for me, please, Rosar. She does not like, I mean, anything to do with Twisted Britain, so that's not going to go down well. No. I'll stay on her good side, thank you. Yeah, I've not. <laughs> anyway, uh, this week's case is going to take us to the beginning of the 20th century. Okay. And I hope you haven't deleted the only sound effect on your flashy recording box. This one? Do you want it now? Yeah, give it now. Here is a security announcement. Please do not leave luggage unattended anywhere on the station. Any unattended luggage will be removed without warning and may be destroyed. Do you want it in French? No. Good. Because you don't have it in French. I don't have it in French. No, I knew that. Bonjour. Ride that button because this is one of the few cases where you're going to need it. Because it is another trunk murder, baby. Yeah, you do like the trunks. That's probably the happiest anybody's ever said those words. It's... Trunk murder, baby. Shall we move on? Yeah. Uh, Although this case is a trunk murder, it's certainly not a trunk mystery. Okay. Very different from our last ones then. Yeah, the Monte Carlo police did not have a difficult time solving this one. So let's get into it. On the 9th of August in 1907, an apparently fairly well-off couple arrived at Marseille train station on their way to London. It was some hours until their train departed, so the couple checked a large trunk into the station's luggage storage... Here is a security announcement. Please do not leave luggage unattended anywhere on the station. Any unattended luggage will be removed without warning and may be destroyed. Is that button just replacing me in this podcast? It could this week, yeah. (laughs) It really could. Anyway, while their case was in storage, they went to eat in a nearby hotel. Ah, le petit déjeuner. Oui, oui. So they went to the toilet and had their breakfast. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm really sorry, France. My French is not great. Uh, the trunk was checked in by two very annoying station clerks. Oh, there's this trunk. It's so heavy. Yeah, Pons and Gribble. No, no, no way. Well, Mr. Pons and Mr. Gribble. <laughs> they sound like they should be in like a, uh, a murder mystery, like on the Orient Express yeah. type. Yeah. Pons and Gribble are particularly annoying to me because if you're researching them over a century later, you'll find Pons and Gribble both tell exactly the same story in numerous contemporary tabloid articles, each claiming that the other took a small bribe from the gentleman in order to ask no questions about the case, but that they would never do such a thing and they reported the odd case at once. Pons did it. No, Gribble did it. No, Pons did it. They both did it. Uh, it's more likely that both Pons and Gribble took small bribes because no questions were asked or reports made while the trunk was being stored. The trunk, I should mention, stank of death. Right, okay. That makes a big difference to, yeah. to the bribery. Yeah. The gentleman had said that he was transporting dead chickens to explain the smell. I mean, I would ask why. Yeah, this in my mind raises more questions than it answers. Uh, loads more. Yeah. Why do you have dead chickens? Yeah. But small bribe, no questions. Right, cool. No questions until... The trunk began to leak foul-smelling blood from the seams at its base. Foul like a chicken. Yeah. Clever. Thanks. You did it. I did. <laughs> then, because everybody's going to notice that, Pons and Gribble reported the suspicious case to their supervisor, who alerted the police. Ah, McPhee. Yeah. Ah, Monsieur Pons, <laughs> the trunk, she's leaking the blood all over the floor. I'm pretty sure at some point we've said you were going to stop doing accents, but... Don't. We did. I'm really sorry, France. The Marseille police were waiting for the couple at the station when they returned from their meal. They were unconvinced by the dead chicken story. Fair enough. Yeah, and they demanded the trunk be opened. Inside was the dismembered body of a middle-aged lady. Definitely not a chicken. No, zero chickens, maximum dismembered body. Head off, legs off, arms off, stuffed in a trunk. Right, okay. Heavy trunk then. Big trunk. Big trunk. French police arrested the couple, who were Mrs. Marie Jardin Gould and Mr. Vier St. Ledger Gould. Okay. The name Vier St. Ledger Gould meant nothing to me before researching this. It probably meant nothing to the Marseille police when they arrested him. But his story is, to be honest, more interesting than the crime at the end of it. So we're going back in time now, Wayne's World style. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To see how an Irish one-time Wimbledon finalist ends up with a body in a trunk at a Marseille train station. Very much enjoy that sentence. Yeah. St. <laughs> Gould was born in the small town of Clonwell in County Tipperary on the 2nd of October in 1853. Okay. Technically part of the British Isles, so I guess it counts. They were on a train to London. He played at Wimbledon. We're, we're going to go with it. We're going to go with it? Nice. We're going to go with it. His parents were Irish aristocrats, and Veer would have a charmed childhood. Compared with the middle and lower classes' decimation due to poverty and starvation at the time, the top 10% lived in exquisite luxury. All the potatoes they needed. All the potatoes they needed. No potato famine for the top 10%. Veer was raised in the lovely coastal city of Waterford on an estate owned by his grandfather, who was a baronet. A baronet? Yeah. Baronet was the lowest possible aristocratic title in the UK. Okay. But surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, very few high titles were given to Irish nobles. 
Yeah, okay, that's fair enough. Especially at that kind of time free period we're talking about. Exactly. That the family had a title at all is a little surprising. Uh, Veer was an excellent sportsman. He grew up and competed in many Ponce upper-class sports like sailing, cricket, crochet and boxing. Crochet. Croquet. Croquet. That might have been croquet. Leave that in, it's grand. <laughs> he made his own shorts. Yeah, he made his own shorts for boxing, which I'm counting as a Ponce upper-class sport. I mean, you've said it, I yeah. haven't. Just going to put that out there. Well, the lower classes were all too busy fighting. Yeah, he was a handsome young man with fair hair and dark eyes, and he was quite charming. He had a great education for the time, and he was well-spoken even for his sort of lower upper-class station. You seem to be hot flushing here. Are you all right? I've, I've poor. He had that Irish accent. Tore love and thunder. And his crocheted shorts. And his crocheted shorts. Uh, when Veer was 17, his mother died, and this had a profound effect on the young man. In the sense that dealing with it, Veer would drown himself in alcohol and set up a destructive pattern of behaviour that would eventually lead to his downfall. I mean, I'm going to say almost excusable. Mm-hmm. Like, you can understand... You can understand somebody falling into a pit of essential depression. Um, if, however, it ends in a body in a trunk, it's not usually acceptable. No, and it's many, many years. Oh, okay. This just, it's the start of his self-destructive behaviour. It's the beginning of the journey. We did the wibble-wibble a minute ago, so... Yeah. It was after his mother's death that Veer started mixing with the higher elites of society. The Gould family were not poor by any stretch of the imagination. They couldn't even see poor from where they were. But they also weren't wealthy by the standards of the upper class. And Veer would frequently amass gambling debts while drinking and socialising, which he couldn't afford to pay from his generous trust. I like that phrase, they couldn't even see poor from where they were. Yeah. Like, you, you, you can clearly picture that, living on the estate, playing tennis on the lawn. That's a, yeah, I like that a lot, Al. Crocheting stuff. Crocheting stuff. Towards the end of the 1900s, though, things were looking up for Veer St. Ledger Gould. He'd taken up the new sport of tennis as it rose in popularity in Ireland's aristocracy at the time. Tennis for Veer was a way to meet and mix with the super elites of society without amassing huge gambling debts. Oh, yeah. He also proved very good at it and would in a short time compete at Wimbledon. I mean, that's the top of the top. <clears throat> he was pretty good. I'd like to apologise in advance now to tennis. Just in its entirety. Yeah, in its entirety and in general. Because I'm about to say a lot of tennis things, and I don't necessarily know what they mean. I'll do my best to keep you right. First, in 1877, Veer Gould won the Waterford Annual Lawn Tennis Tournament. Then, in 1878, he only went and won it again. Oh, he's doing well. He is. Then he went on to the South Ireland Tennis Championship in Limerick. Here on the 30th of September... Gould defeated English favourite William Henry Darby, 8-6-8-6. Oh, close match. Numbers. This was also the first tennis tournament, though, to feature women. Oh, okay. Very progressive limerick. (laughs) I thought you were going to break into a progressive limerick. (laughs) No. The next year, Gould would defend his Waterford title against Englishman David Charles Barry, defeating him in what I presume might have been a thrilling match, 8-6-8-6. Would you like a quick rundown? Maybe, yeah. So tennis, you play in sets. Yep. You need to win two sets to win the match. In there, in a grand slam, you have to win three sets out of five. And usually it's won by winning the first six games. Mm. Or six, four. But you have to win by two games. So that would go to eight, six. Cool. 
Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm done with that. Right, fine. Gould, by the way, was said to have a strong forearm. <laughs> I know what that means. <laughs> Not in the way you think it does. No, I know what that means. <laughs> he was also said to have great domination of the net. I don't know what that means. No, no, no. It's not the same thing. <laughs> From the 7th to the 16th of July, 1879, Gould competed in the third Wimbledon Championship. Of the Open Era. Yep. Gould performed very well, and he bested all challengers with apparent ease before going to the final. He only dropped two sets on the way there. Really good. Yeah. It is. I'm presuming someone picked them up, though. One of those guys that picked the balls up will have got them. Your lack of sporting knowledge is actually baffling. I know what sports. 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 Anyway, um, on the final day, on the final match, Virgul seemed slow and ponderous on the court, and the net remained undominated for the majority of the match. Never, never leave it alone. Exactly. Virgul would lose the final to the Englishman John Hartley. 6-2-4-6-6-2. Okay. Reasonably close match, but he lost. John Hartley was the only priest ever to win Wimbledon. Is that right? Reverend in the Church of England. That's a wonderful fact. (laughs) That feels like it's going to make the pub quiz one day. One day, yeah. It would emerge a few days later that Veer St. Ledger Gould had spent the preceding night and most of the morning before the final drinking and was, if not still drunk, monumentally hungover when he was playing that match. Okay. I mean, he was probably quite excited about making the final Wimbledon. Yeah. But he's got carried away one day too early. Yeah. Right. Next, Gould was in the finals of the Gloucestershire Championship in October. Here he would lose to another Englishman, William Renshaw. 4-6-3-6-6-5-4-6. Okay. Numbers. Renshaw would go on, though, to be a tennis icon, winning Wimbledon seven times and the doubles at Wimbledon five times. Oh, he was pretty good then. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of 1979, Veer Gould was ranked the second best player in the world after John Harclear. Do th- what was the date you said there? 1879. It's not what you said. Anyway, at the end of 1879, Veer Gould was ranked the second best player in the world after John Harclear. Okay. Leaving all that in. Good. Right date. The next few years, however, saw Veer Gould's career decline as illness, alcohol abuse, and drug addiction all took their toll on him. <sighs> Strong uh, combo. Yeah. He still played tennis competitively, but he only won minor titles until his retirement from the sport in 1883. But at this point, that was his his livelihood, his income. That was how he was making his living. Yeah. He wasn't doing it as a side project. No, he was a professional tennis player. But Veer Gould now, but Veer Gould now begins a slow decline as he drinks more and more and again begins gambling. But his life perks up, from his point of view at least, when he moves to London and chances to meet Marie Girdan. Marie was a French dressmaker who owned her own shop in Bayswater, which is an upmarket area down in London. Yep. Uh, The meeting is purest serendipity, or worst luck, depending on your view. (laughs) One of Veer's relatives had a dress made by Marie, and Veer was asked to drop off payment to the shop. Marie was charming, younger than Veer, and paid the minor aristocrat special attention as he delivered the money. The pair would hit it off and eventually marry in 1891. I mean, I suppose he was probably quite a a mild celebrity at this point. She'd have been quite... If not starstruck, taken aback by the man coming in to her shop. So yeah, yeah. Bit, bit in awe, maybe? I don't know. Okay. By the end of it, we don't like her. Right, fine. At this point, start of the journey, wibble wibble. Maybe. Anyway, Marie Jardin. 
Now Marie Jordan Gould, obviously, because she's married him, is a shady character, if an excellent dressmaker. She was born in France in 1860. The daughter of an ironmonger. He munged iron. Yes. She worked talking about sports has made you dumb. (laughs) (laughs) She worked in the clothing trade from a young age, and she was talented, and her services were in demand, if not especially profitable. Right. She was good at what she did, but she couldn't make much money at it. While quite young, Marie married a Frenchman, who her parents disapproved of greatly. Their dislike was maybe not unfounded, since a week after the marriage, he ran off, leaving Marie grief-sticken. That's okay, though. She travelled to Geneva, and then on to London, plying her dressmaking skills along the way, before setting up her shop in Bayswater. So she's done all right. She's done not bad. At some point, she learned that her husband back in France had died, leaving her a widow, but also freeing her to remarry. Oh, yeah. So remarry she did. A nice English captain in the British Army. Oh, I, not what I thought you were going to say there. No, he died too. Right. Leaving Marie double widowed. Ah. But free to remarry Gould when he came along. Right, okay. I thought you were going to go again, but okay. <laughs> sometimes opposites attract. And sometimes it's what you have in common that brings people together. Whatever brought this couple together, they were both, unfortunately, equally and mutually self-destructive. Oh. The couple mixed with the rich and the wealthy and lived well beyond their means while Marie's dress shop was failing and most of Veer's income went on gambling debts. I wonder if he ever gambled on tennis. No. No, definitely didn't. Never gamble on tennis. Uh, Was that his rule or yours? Mine. Right, okay. (laughs) Anyway, they both, as I say, carelessly lived well beyond their means and before long, they were behind on their rent and they'd already sold all their furniture to delay creditors. Right. So, the couple emigrate slash flee to Montreal in Canada around 1900. Fairly like, she's a well-travelled woman. She gets about, doesn't she? And I would imagine he probably travelled at least the continent of, oh, certainly. of Europe for, for tennis and things like that. So, yeah. you know, a well-travelled couple. Yeah. The brave new world, however, proves to contain the same old vices as the old one. Ah, yeah. And Veer and Marie make the same old mistakes. Marie sets up an unsuccessful dressmaking shop and Veer starts to gather new gambling debts. It's amazing that you can drink and gamble in Canada as well. Yeah. Who knew? The couple also continue their lavish lifestyle far beyond their means. The only noteworthy change is that the pair now introduce themselves as Sir Veer and Lady Marie Gould. So they're living off his um, mild amount of aristocratical knowledge. Aristocratical? Yep, that's right. That's a real word. That's a real word. I'm going with that. I'm sticking with that word. It's one of those words that I started and didn't know where the end was. <laughs> but he would have known how to be a sir. Yeah, he's just that he technically wasn't But he a wasn't. Sir. So his title at that point would have been held by his older brother. Uh, okay. But he would have also have been... But he also knew how to be around high society, so he understood yeah. that side of it. Yeah. He was raised with the aristocratic arrogance. Aristocratical. That word, yeah. Think you'll well find. Done, <laughs> so the couple emigrate slash flee to Montreal. Uh, for the next few years, Vera Marie bounce between Ireland and Montreal, dodging creditors, until they come into some money from Vera's family, and during a lull in financial disasters, briefly settle in Liverpool in 1903, where they start a Failing laundry business. Okay. With no change to the pair's constant lavish personal expense, it's not long before this business too is failing and the couple need a new way to make money. Marie presses Veer into a trip to Monaco where she believes they can win large sums. 
at gambling tables in Monte Carlo with a system that she's worked out. Oh, she's worked out a system. She's got a system. Did she have a sports almanac? Yes. Right. With no better option, Vera agrees, and the couple make the trip in 1907. Right. Tricky time in Europe. Yeah, it is quite a tricky time in Europe. Well, we're certainly getting to the trickiest of times in Europe, but... Veer and Marie don't mess around. Uh, they rent out an entire floor of a luxury villa complex in Monaco, and they insert themselves into high society and start burning money. They're still fraudulently using the titles Sir and Lady Gould, although ironically now they could legally have taken the title up since his older brother had emigrated to Australia a few years ago to work on the railway, and he dropped the title because he didn't want to be associated with nobility. So he could he just left his title behind. Yeah. So his younger brother would just genuinely inherit it as yeah. as the next in line to that title. Yeah, he just hadn't. He just right, okay. Yeah. Another thing the couple had with them uh, was Marie's young and very beautiful niece Isabel. They stole her niece. She had a niece. He brought her with her. Right, okay. They brought they just brought her. They didn't steal her. <laughs> we don't know. That is true. Uh, but a pretty enough girl is welcome in any level of society run by men. Yeah. So she was handy to have along. It's a really sad statement, isn't it? Like, True, though. Yeah. For the first few weeks, the couple did quite well at the tables, probably due to blind chance or the casinos working them, as opposed to any system Marie had devised. After a month, however, Vera and Marie's luck changed, and they started to lose what little money they did have. They were soon in financial trouble again, unable to pay for the villa they were staying in or the lifestyle they lived. What they needed really was a rich patron, who could lend them enough money to break even and then move on. So they have just left, like, financial devastation behind everywhere they went. Yes. And and have never paid for it. No. They've literally gone, we fucked up in London, we're off. Yep. We fucked up in Montreal, we're off. Fucked up in Monaco, now what? Yeah. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now find a rich patron. I mean... I'd love a rich patron. Yeah, we all would, but it's not actually as ridiculous as it sounds. The mega rich were always loaning each other money, safe in the knowledge that no gentleman or lady would act dishonourably in Scarper. <laughs> Can't believe that would happen. No. Not three times. Not three times. I suppose <laughs> technically it was harder for nobility to run because they only had one gigantic house. I mean... It's just difficult finding which room they're in. Are you, are you thinking about like a Cluedo mansion? Yeah. I'm not sure that's how it works. That's how all the super rich live. What? In the library with a wrench. Yeah, and the candlestick. <laughs> anyway, uh, Marie was actually quite skilled when it came to manipulating people. And she had already several times left wealthy customers of her dressmaking shops as less wealthy creditors after sweet-talking large sums out of them before leaving. Yeah. And Marie had also coincidentally recently befriended a lady in the casinos who could be perfect, Miss Emma Levin. Levin? Miss Emma Levin. In many ways, Mrs. Levin was not unlike Marie. 
She had a hard upbringing and from humble beginnings, and she was widowed. Unlike Marie, though, whose husbands both left her nothing, Emma Levin's husband left her a fortune upon his death, and she'd wanted for little save his return ever since. Right. Aw. Aw. She was originally from Denmark. Uh, she was raised in a small coastal town until she met a rich Swedish merchant whom she married and moved to Stockholm with. Changed my mind about the patron. I'd like to re- meet a rich Swedish merchant. Yeah, me too. Wouldn't we all? <laughs> Mrs. Levin was travelling with the even more fabulously wealthy Madame Castellazzi. Very good. Who took an instant dislike to Marie and voiced her opinion as only the super rich can. Is it because she felt that this woman was probably about to milk them? Quite possibly, yeah. Uh, Mrs. Levin was a gregarious and outgoing person, however, and under the stern disapproval of Madame Castellazzi, started spending time with Marie. Okay. Madame Castellazzi's bullshit censor was on point, though, and Mrs. Levin would have been pretty good to listen to her before lending a thousand francs to Marie. Uh. Yeah. Predictably, it wasn't long before that thousand francs was gone, and Vera and Marie were avoiding Mrs. Levin, lest she ask for the loan back. Had they just gambled it away? Yeah, they gambled it away. Right. It took them about a week. Wow. This didn't go unnoticed by Madame Castellazzi. And she and this led to a confrontation between Madame Castellazzi and Lady Gould in the foyer of a public casino, which quickly became the talk of Monte Carlo. As it would, yeah. And a big shouting match in the foyer. Nice. Uh, although she wasn't directly involved, the incident caused Mrs. Levin some concern, and she decided to go back to Sweden for a time after getting her thousand francs back from Marie. Seems reasonable. Yeah. On the 4th of August 1907, Emma Levin left on her way to the villa rented by Ver and Marie Gould. That was the last time she'd be seen alive. I always know that sentence coming. Don't ever like it. It's never a good sentence. Despite Madame Castellazzi reporting Mrs Emma Levin missing the next day, it wasn't until the arrest of Ver and Marie Gould some four days later that French authorities actually went to investigate the villa. Right. Marie's niece Isabel was still living there. And she told police that Ver and Marie had gone back to England because Ver needed to see his own doctor. Um, okay. I mean, if he was really upper class, like he was pretending to be, he would have had his own physician and things like that. So it's not... He would have. Beyond reasonable... He would have. But if he was really upper class, he wouldn't have had a dismembered body in a trunk. Yeah, I was kind of skipping over that. That's sentence. lower class right there. <laughs> is, it, is, that, is that how you judge class? Yeah. What's in your trunk? Yeah, if it's a dismembered corpse, lower class. There used to be a, like a, big, a kid's class that we took, I think it was Isaac to, and the start of the, the uh, class was always, what's in the box today, the box today, the box today, what's in the box today, we'll have to wait and see. I hope it's never, ever been a body. Or the Lonely Island. Oh, the Lonely Island. <laughs> it's my dick in a box. <laughs> oh, no. And that is not only the only time we'll say it's a dick in a box, but also the only time I'll sing on this podcast. Do we, do we owe Lonely Island royalties now? We might. <laughs> anyway, back to the villa. Police searched the villa, and they discovered many things that seemed out of place in a summer holiday villa. Winter clothes? A hammer. Oh, okay. A butcher's knife. Uh, a saw. Yes. All stained with blood. Yeah. I was just thinking, like, hat. 
woolly hat, gloves. These are much worse. Christmas tree. <laughs> Christmas tree. <laughs> Things you wouldn't expect in a summer holiday villa. Christmas tree. <laughs> bloody implements of death. Yeah, bloody implements of death. Plus, there was also extensive blood stains on the floor of one of the rooms. Okay. Back in Marseille, Veer and Marie Gould are still being questioned. They tell police that M11 had been killed in their villa, but by her boyfriend, who then ran away. A big boy done it and ran away. Big boy done it and ran away. Right. It's so, so classic. It's such a great excuse. Literally. Big boy did it, ran away. Uh, then in a panic, they chopped up Marie's, until very recently, friend, and put her in the travel trunk with the plan of taking the whole problem back to England with them. I mean, there's so many flaws to this plan. Oh, yeah. I can't even begin to comprehend. Yeah. There's no point in even beginning to pick it apart. Marseille police were less than convinced by this. Good. Mrs. M11 didn't seem the type to have jealous lovers, nor was there any evidence of her having been seen with a boyfriend while in Monte Carlo. Then there's Madame Castellazzi, who didn't know of any boyfriends. Also, she strikes me as the kind of woman who would chase potential boyfriends off. Yeah. With a literal stick, if her acerbic wit didn't do the job. This big boy's not staying long enough to run away. Exactly. It also hadn't helped that Marie had all of M11's jewellery hidden in her handbag. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, she's gone missing, but I just got all the shiny shit. Yeah. So, French police charged both Ver Gould and Marie Gould with the murder of Emma Levin. Seems reasonable. Yeah. Uh, some interesting things happen now, and I can't go into the reasoning or the detail of them because French documents. Ah, uh, yeah. I can see how much that's paining you. It's, it's quite annoying. Uh, almost as soon as the couple are both charged with Emma Levin's murder... Veer confesses to the crime and states that his wife had nothing to do with the killing. Right. However, the investigation by French authorities painted a picture where it was Marie who masterminded and quite possibly executed the murder. So Veer's confession was discounted and the couple would both stand trial. That's really, like, that's quite interesting. Like, he's obviously stood up to defend his wife or he's been drunk or both. I think he stood up to defend his wife. And they've gone, that doesn't seem right to me. Yeah. And Mrs. Castellazzi? Castellazzi. Um, Madame Castellazzi. Madame Castellazzi. I'm not, I'm not going to do it the way you do it. Um, probably went, nah, she's the bad in here. Yeah. And she spent enough time basically disliking the couple to know which one was the nastier of the two. Yes. She would have spent time with both of them. Yeah. In the casinos over the past few months. Tutting. Yeah, tutting away. The trial would take place at Monaco's Palais de Justice. Very good. On the 2nd of December. It was as big a media circus as you could expect. Imagine if Andy Murray chopped someone up and then put them in a suitcase after his career implodes due to drug and alcohol abuse. I mean, that, that would be a big story. Yeah, we'd cover that. We'd go contemporary and cover that. You reckon we would? Yeah, I'd cover that. Not sure I could. <laughs> Anyway, the tabloids reacted... <laughs> I know quite a lot of his family. Very similarly know. then, as they would now. Okay, well, yeah, we probably wouldn't cover that. Okay, that's quite close to home. I used to do panto with cousins. I'm absolutely but not it, doing that. That doesn't matter, because that'll never happen, obviously. Oh, right, okay, you cool. would never chop someone up and put them in a trunk. No. His hips are too fucked. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, his hips are too fucked, that's why. Anyway, media circus... Uh, newspapers ran the headline Monaco Trunk Murder 
all around the world. And interestingly, almost all of them vilified Marie and were far more forgiving of Ver. Um, Because he'd already been in the media spotlight and he was a nice, easy story. Possibly. Or having said that, actually, now that I think about that out loud, like it would have been easier for them to go former Wimbledon finalist found guilty of murder. Yeah. That's a bigger It's headline. a better story if Veer is the more guilty party. Yeah, okay. Once the trial began, Veer again tried to take full and sole responsibility for the crime. But the court were not interested and they dismissed his testimony. French authorities seemed to mirror the views of the tabloids, seeing Marie as an almost Lady Macbeth-like figure manipulating her husband, who, though far from guiltless, was also not actually evil. Are we allowed to say Macbeth on a podcast? Yeah. Because we're not doing it on stage? Yeah. Okay, cool. I mean, that was my worry there, not the, <laughs> not, not the murder. <laughs> Nobody look up. <laughs> We've all seen the Blackadder episode. Yeah, we have. <laughs> uh, the trial was a short affair, with the jury bringing back a unanimous verdict of guilty for both parties. For both parties, okay. For both parties. The verdicts, though, would reflect the court's belief that Marie was the true criminal there. Ver St. Ledger Gould was sentenced to life in prison on the French penal colony of Devil's Island. Which we know is ta- Tasmania now? Uh, no. Actually, Devil's Island is a French penal colony... Off French Guyana, I think, established in 1852 by the Napoleonic government. Okay, we've definitely talked about uh, a few of the penal colonies. In, in, in uh, sorry, Tasmania was Van Diemen's Land. Van Diemen's Land, that's the one I was looking Oof. for, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Devil Demon, give me a break, come yeah, on. Very, 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 very similar. Anyway, uh, he would fall into a deep depression and commit suicide on the 8th of September... 1909. That's very sad. It's quite sad. Marie Gould, now she was sentenced to death Uh. in 1909 by guillotine. Oh, yes, we're in France, aren't we? But it's 1909. Well, do you know, weirdly, because we'd been looking into the hangings and stuff recently, um, the guillotine was used a lot more recently than you would think it was. It was, but it hadn't been used for a while. Yeah, okay. (laughs) This, I think, doubly indicates how much the court felt Marie was responsible for the crime. Not only was it a far harsher sentence than Veer's, France hadn't used the guillotine for about nine years, and they didn't even have an executioner anymore. Oh, dear. Doesn't take much, though, does it? No, I know, but, I mean, the judge, whose name I absolutely can't pronounce, (laughs) so to retain his dignity, I shall call him the Right Honourable Judge Fromage. He might have been trying to make a point. When he committed the sentence. Oh. Alistair, we're going to get in trouble from the French. Oh, they, they love it. Or maybe the right honourable judge Fromage really thought that they would hire an executioner and build a guillotine just to execute one woman. I was going to make a yoghurt joke, but I'm not going to. Either way, it's clear who the court and the tabloids thought was the most responsible for the murder of Emma Levin. Yeah. However, her sentence was commuted. Okay. Because they didn't have a guillotine to kill her with. It's, it's a, was it's a, a life in prison. Was it as simple as we do not have yeah. a, a big blade? Yeah, it was literally, we do not have a guillotine anymore. You're staying in prison forever. I suppose that's the difference between erecting a gallows, because you just need some wood and a rope. You'd actually have to build a mechanism yeah. for a guillotine. Ah, that is mad. Just literally due to logistics. Yeah. 
she was sent to jail for life. Yeah. Wow. And she was never executed. She died in 1914 of typhoid in prison. Uh, typhoid Marie. Yeah. So the courts obviously think that she was the mastermind. But what do we think? Was she a Lady Macbeth figure? Look up. Um, I, I don't know. He's fucked up probably more than she has in life. Oh, yeah. He's certainly fallen farther. Oh, yeah, absolutely fallen farther. But was she a manipulative wench is, is, is the question here. And has she thought the easy way to get out of this is she can get away with it because they're going to blame the man? She certainly found the mark. Mrs. Levin or Levin befriended her in the casino. Yeah, I was going to come. It was her who borrowed a thousand francs from Emma Levin, not Veer St. Gould. So I want to come back to that just briefly. So this was a completely monogamous relationship that the Goulds were in. Yeah, he actually really, really loved her. He was besotted with her for his entire life. So we don't think that Marie had targeted a pretty woman because he th- she thought she could bring a pretty woman into the marriage and she would have been easier to manipulate in that no, way. No, you see what You kind of see where I'm going with it. Yeah. Rather than... And there was no uh, lesbian tendency there or anything. No. It was just that uh, she was an easy mark. She was an easy mark for the money. And maybe Marie was a better talker, convincer, people person yeah. than, than Ver was. Or she was willing. Okay, yeah. To, to, act, to go out and do it. Yeah. On his bequest. Or on the, on the bequest of the couple. You see, Ver St. Gould, to me, strikes me as sort of just a dumb aristocrat. Okay. He's, he's a, an idiot... He will gamble away money. He will get himself into horrendous debt. Consistently. Consistently. Like, and over and over again. Yeah. But he never borrowed... Well, he did. But he never borrowed money from people. He would mass gambling debts. And then run away. He didn't even run away. He just didn't have the money to pay it. And then his family would have to pay it. Right. But he didn't screw people over in the same way that Marie did consecu- uh, consistently throughout her travels. She left creditors behind her. So do we think that their move from London to Montreal and then from Montreal to Monte Carlo was based on her? Yes, I do. His family were wealthy enough to always bail him out. So he could have gone home at any point as well? Yes, he could, technically. So maybe he was just on a fight of fancy. Fight, fight of fancy. Fight of fancy. Light of fancy. Wow. Maybe he was just on a flight of fancy with a woman that he was, as you say, completely besotted with. And he was. I mean, he confessed and tried to take sole responsibility for that murder. So, and we know that she... Do we know who used the the tools of the murder? We don't. I did look at the autopsy report, but it was in French. Okay. So So I don't know how deep the hammer blow... I do know that there was a hammer blow to the head. Right. But I don't know how deep it was, whether they thought it was done by a male or a female. And actually, not even just a male or female... Uh, a very accomplished tennis player would have had quite a swing on him. Oh yeah! So like, he had a powerful forearm, as we as you said. Yeah, um, and and that's what I mean. Like, has he committed the crime on her bequest, even because she shit her knickers at the end of it all and thought there is no way out, or has this been a full couple thing where there is no way out and he's gone? Actually, I was guilty because I presume he didn't. 
um, argue the um, the trial's punishment that was put on him. Nope. He went to uh, Devil's Island. Devil's Island. Willingly. Willing. Willingly is a very weird term to use there, but he was accepting of the. Yeah, he of accepted his, fate. his punishment. I don't know then. I don't know where I sit with this at all. I know, all. it's a very difficult one, and I wish I could get more detail on it. Well, if you know anything about this case, um, which I would be really interested to hear if anybody had heard of this. Like, I had, I am a tennis fan. I'm, I'm a big Andy Murray fan, and I do watch Wimbledon every year, and, 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 and the French, the Australian, and, and uh, the US Opens, and any others that happen to be on the telly. I wouldn't have said I was a, a tennis historian, but... You know, something like that, considering what we do sitting here in the pub. You'd think you'd have come you'd across. You'd think I'd have come across it, and I haven't at all. It is a weird one. Um, Anybody else who, like me, wants to know more about this case might want, like me, to check out Alan Little's book, St. Ledger Gould, A Tale of Two Courts, which I'm presuming goes into far more detail probably than we have. I don't know. I have not had time to order it yet, but I will do. Will you do me the favour, then, that I will try and find another sports-related crime and to give you time to have a read of that book and come back to us on what uh, Alan thinks. Yes. Uh, and and, and uh, amend your thoughts. We can have an update. Would you, would you do us that favour? I will. Um, so anybody else who knows anything about it or would like to know more, either uh, look up the book, as Alistair says, or tell us what you think. Um, I very much enjoyed that. And do you know what? I enjoyed that for more hours than I've enjoyed most of yours because I sat earlier this afternoon, must have been what, uh, four o'clock or something, you text me. Um, I've got one for you. <laughs> it's not much crime. But, but a lot of tennis. But there's a lot of tennis. And I sat there, I literally at work and went, what the fuck <laughs> is he talking about? And I didn't, I was like, if I look up crime tennis, I'm going to like lose my mind trying to work out what he's talking about. But there you are. Veer St. Ledger Gould. Veer St. Ledger Gould. Um, Andy Murray knows who he is. <laughs> Look, let's not bring Andy into this anymore. Okay. I'm getting a bit... No, no more Andy. <laughs> um, thank you, Alistair. I very much enjoyed that. And as I say, I've enjoyed it for more hours than, than normal. And I'll try and not forget all about this because we will do a revisit on this at some yeah, point. Yeah, we will. I'm gonna, I've ordered Alan Little's book. And I will look up Crimes in Sports British History. Didn't ever think we'd get to Crimes in Sport, but there you are. Oh, Nadine did uh, Shergar way, nice. way back when, so I suppose that's this is our second... That counts as sport crime. Second sporting crime. Uh, also Irish. <laughs> if you have enjoyed this episode that Alistair has delivered for us beautifully again this evening, uh, please do look us up on all the social media channels. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by doing what, Alistair? You look up Twisted Britain, you smash that like bar. There we go. Something along those lines on each of them. We're going to have a like bar. I don't know how, but one day it'll happen. I'll I'll Twitter at e- Elon Musk. I've been talking to him. You haven't? No, I haven't. You've been? He, he returns all my tweets. Elon Musk. Oh, that's where I've been making a mistake. <laughs> Wrong vowel. Yeah. God. He's got one follower and he keeps wanting to come to my house. Um, I'm ne- I don't want to have to write a fucking episode about you. Don't do these things. You might. Um, check out our back catalogue if you haven't. Um, if you found this one as your first episode, wow. Yeah. Well done. Um, so we, we usually make more sense. Not really. It made more sense when it was you and 18. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
I have never. I mean, I wrote that intro, and at no point in my life have I ever thought this intro needs to include the word "we make sense." That's true. Um, we don't. We talk shit about stuff you've probably never heard of, or if you have, you know more about it than we do. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, true. a decent synopsis of yeah. Twisted Britain. Um, and on that note, if you have enjoyed what you've listened to, please do hit a, a rating and a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to, because apparently it helps Al Gore's dancing. Does it? Algorithm. Nice. Yeah. That was the daddest joke you've ever made. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. Thank you. Love you. Bye. And I thank you. Love you. Bye. Thank you. Love you. Bye. I can hear myself. Ooh. <laughs>